This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore, this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally, mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. On this episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, we welcome a very special guest for a discussion on student loan debt and financial literacy awareness across all levels of educational programs. Tonight, we have the pleasure of welcoming Joe Renke, CEO and founder of Fitbucks, Inc. Now, Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Do you think you could give our audience uh, a little bit of background regarding your journey as to how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, thanks guys for having me on the on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, my background, there was always two parts of me growing up. One was the financial background, investments. A lot of that stemmed from family and whatnot. But then the other part of me was athletics. And my journey through high school was I was, you know, sports first, everything else second. And I got really injured my senior year playing sports, tried to play through college, found out, you know, I'm definitely not going pro in anything. My journey first took me to actually working in professional sports after that. And then I worked for the Dodgers for about a year. But a lot of that, I had that financial background. My degree was in finance. And, you know, I started looking at it. And I don't know if you guys know that much about professional sports, but it's not very sexy when you're working on that side, especially on like the scouting side and stuff. You're probably making about 36 grand a year. And, you know, my thing was, you know, I got this financial background, you know, I can go and make a lot of money. And, you know, it's to me, it was a lot more meaningful than what I was doing in sports. And so I decided to pursue going into finance. You know, I went started off in mortgages. That was uh, about a year after that was when the mortgage debacle happened. I ended up saying, well, I need to further my education in this. So I ended up starting to pursue getting my CFA charter, which is the charter financial analyst. Guess you could consider it almost, I guess some people describe it as like a postdoctorate in finance. It's a series of three tests that you can only take one a year. And if you fail that test, you can't take it again until the next year. So I can't remember how many people, there's about 100,000 people people in the world that have it. And the probability, for example, of passing each test is something like 30%. So that sounds awful. Why would you? (laughs) Yeah, it was basically three years of having no life. Like I was working full time as a financial advisor. And at the same time, I was studying about five hours a night. Yeah, it was it was a grind. Let's say that. But it you know, looking back on it now, it was very well worth it because once it's done, you have those letters behind your name and they can never take them from you. So unless you just do something really, really bad. <laughs> but <laughs> so I got that. And at the same time, like I said, I was doing wealth management for uh, while I was getting my, my charter. After I got the charter, I left wealth management to do more like investments. And I always was running my own investment company for my own money during that time period. But I wanted to get more into like analyst roles where we were actually analyzing investments and, you know, working with investment banking and pension funds and, you know, advising on that side of it. And so I left the wealth management firm. And right after I did that, I found out that 
my dad had to have heart surgery. So I ended up running his company for about six months. And then after he came back, I went into that investment banking world, the valuation world. And then from there, uh, I started FitBooks. So that's been my journey to date. I always joke around. People just joke around with me because I started FitBooks and like, you guys are concentrating on student loan debt. I'm like, yes. You know, what's, what's your point? And they're like, you know, the guys that know me, they're like, you're an investor at heart. Like, you know, why did you start FitBooks? I'm like, because I want people to get out of debt so they can invest. Like, <laughs> that's the whole point. Smart. Um, smart plan. So, <laughs> Very smart. Yep. So that's my background, high level, you know, on my journey to, to where I'm at today. Awesome, Joe. And it's really inspiring to hear you kind of go into the realm of, you know, addressing the student loan debt problem. And, you know, and kind of with that, do you feel that you can kind of give us an overview, along with some of the data on the student loan debt problem that students in the U.S. are currently facing? Yeah, so there's the high level statistics, right, that everybody always quotes these different articles, 44 trillion in debt, you know, 46 million borrowers combined between parents and students and all that type of stuff. When you dig deeper into some of the details, that is where you start to see some of the bigger problems. You can bifurcate it between like undergrad and graduate studies. So one big problem there, for example, is undergraduate, even though it's been expensive and the average debt's like 30 grand a year or 30 grand now for the average undergrad that there's a limit you can borrow on how much for undergrads. And I want to say back in 2010, President Obama lifted how much you can borrow for grad school. Yeah, you know, there used to be a limit on it. And so since there's no a limit anymore on how much you can get for federal grad plus loans, you've seen an explosion in, in tuition prices for all types of grad schools across the board. And it's very expensive now to get some of these graduate degrees. So that's been, you know, one issue that we've seen. But then the other one is the confusion around plans. Okay. And just for like the income driven repayment plans, for example, actually just federal loans in general, there's eight different repayment plans right now for federal loans. For the income driven repayment plans, there's actually five or six different plans. Considering how you look at them, there's five. But then if you add in public service loan forgiveness, there's six. And that product itself is extremely, extremely complex. And I just saw a survey. So there's five point two million borrowers right now on those income driven repayment plans. And in that same report, it said that 40% of them don't even know that they're on that plan. So you see some of those statistics and it's just jaw dropping to sit there and be like, you know, that's two over 2 million people that don't even know that they're on this plan. And they don't even realize it till a year later and they get a a statement and they look at their loan balance and the statement says your payment's going from $200 a month to $2,000 a month because they didn't recertify their income. And oh, by the way, your loan balance actually went up. And they're like, well, wait, I thought I was paying off my loan. What happened? And then all of a sudden they start looking into it and they had no idea that they were even on it and how it works or anything of that nature. So that's the disturbing trend to me is that people are going into these things, first of all, without knowing. And then once they start repayment, they still don't know. And then they're going down this really, really bad path. You know, so that's where we're at now. Some of the, the data on that, you know, is it affordable? What where the rates should be? I don't know if you guys know this, but rates are going up starting in July for student loans. Grad plus loans are at 7% now. Direct loans are at 6% now. So, you know, how much of a difference will that make? Well, it makes it more expensive. So, you know, those, those are the, some of the statistics that that we run across. If you're looking at PT specifically, you know, on our platform at Fitbucks, the average PT has $144,000 in debt. So that gives us, you know, some framework there about what direction that's going. So yeah, we, uh, we have some interesting statistics that we've been able to, to collect. 
Yeah, Joe, I mean, you know, this is obviously a huge problem. And, you know, in the current trajectory, the way that you see things going, do you think it's a problem that's going to have to be fixed from the top down? Or do you think it'll be a bottom up approach? It's not. This is my opinion. It's not going to come from the top down, meaning the top down when I say that is from the government or the institutions. And the reason why I say the government is top down is because the government now controls or and owns 93% of the debt. Okay. So let me just clarify that. A lot of people have this misconception, especially students and recent grads. And they sit there and say, my lender is doing this to me. My lender is doing that to me. And when you ask them, you know, what do you mean your lender? They start saying, well, Great Lakes or Nelnet or Navient or anything like those companies. Those companies are not your lender. Okay, especially if you have federal loans. Those companies are loan servicers. They service the loan for the lender, meaning the federal government. The government actually owns the paper. They issue out 93% of the loans in this country. So in essence, the loan servicer doesn't work for you. They work for the federal government and they're in charge of collecting the payment for the federal government and that's it, okay? So will it come from the the top, meaning the government? No, I don't see that it will because they're the ones that are issuing it. So if they wanted to change it, they would have already changed it. Will it come from the institutions? No, because they're basically getting a blank check and students keep applying, okay? So like you look at DPT programs, I hear this from chairs all the time. There's no problem because we have 50 spots and we have 500 applicants. Like there's not a problem. So that's not going to stop. And, you know, I can't, I don't necessarily blame them. I used to work for a university and for our baseball team and, you know, trying to get funds was difficult. So here's an opportunity for them to get funds and they're not going to stop that. So do I see that coming from the top down? No, I see it coming from the students. And basically people saying, wait a second, how much am I going to be making when I graduate versus how much am I going to have to take out in debt? Yeah, I'm going to look for an alternative. You know, we start to see it now in the DPT world of, you know, I'm going to graduate with 200 grand in debt. Well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to go become an MD. You know, like if I'm going to take on that much debt, I might as well get paid for it. So we start seeing that with some of our pre-DPT pieces that we've we've rolled out in the last month or two. I also believe that you're going to see alternative routes of education and new things to come about. So one example of that in the DPT industry is things like South College, like a different model that's cheaper and faster and more efficient for people to get their degrees. Maybe a rise more in private schools that get federal funding. So that way they can get more customization and get kids out and get them to pass some of these tests. So that way they can start practicing or whatever it may be. So I think it's going to come from the, the bottom up and then maybe some new innovation of how education is delivered. But if you're looking for the traditional institutions, your big mammoth nonprofit schools, schools and universities and the government to change it, it's not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, that's my opinion. They might change it along the lines of making it simpler, like President Trump is trying to take the five IDR plans and condense them all into one. You know, that is a good idea. Now, what will that one look like? Who knows? But at least it will make it simpler. But that's all you're going to see. You're not going to see a slowdown from them or anything of that nature. Awesome. No, that's good insight. And kind of with that, Joe, are there any other bills or laws that you think will significantly alter the current student loan outlook? Not significantly, where it's going to make a drastic change. You know, to me, something that would be drastic change is like with those grad plus loans, I told you there's no cap on them right now. If they turn around and say we're capping it again, and it's based on proven outcomes of the school, that would be a huge change. That would be something that would be awesome, in my opinion. Another one that would be good would be something of the nature of look, you know, it's not going to be a one size fits all loan anymore. You know, like, hey, you go to school, 
you get a grad plus loan at, you know, 7% and it's the same for every single degree out there. You know, that's one of the things is, is if the government started actually underwriting the loans based on outcomes and income prudential and all that stuff, different schools would have different rates. And that would be good because it would provide insight to the student of what they can expect. And like, I just read a survey. It was, of, I believe it was in Forbes magazine. It was for, I think, 700 deans of different schools across the country. And it was something like 80% said that their job of their school was not to get the student ready for a job and a career. It was simply to expand their horizons and their intellect. And it's like, well, if you actually interview some of the students, do they have that same opinion? Because if they did, I don't think they would be taking out a hundred grand in debt for a $30,000 a year job. Yeah, right. That's brutal. Right. Yeah, exactly. So any like in in terms of like you saying, are there any major bills that would really drastically change the landscape? No, in my opinion. Now, is there small bills that are going to affect some people? Yeah. So for example, they're trying to push through this PSLF law that changes public service loan forgiveness. It basically scraps it. Okay, which there's pros and there's cons of that, of why they're doing that. But anything like major, 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 I I don't see anything as of right now, anywhere in the pipeline of bills or laws or anything of that nature. You know, Joe, I've heard this term a lot about the student loan debt bubble. And if things keep progressing kind of at the rate they do, what do you see the outlook of that overall looking? It's different in terms of like, if you can try to compare it to like the mortgage bubble and this topic, I mean, I can go off on this topic for 45 minutes, 60 minutes, but from a high level, the the mortgage uh, bubble, for example, affected a lot of people immediately. Okay. Meaning, you know, you got foreclosed on, you lost all your money, you're kicked out of your house, you stop spending, that affects your neighbor because then you stop spending and they own the business that you used to spend at. Now you're not spending money, their house value is going down. So that had a real effect. Student loans are a little bit different. It's an effect that happens over time. And over time, you'll see trends like lower buying trends. And this is why I think you're starting to see a big boom in in some of the sharing, the quote unquote sharing economy. So sharing of vehicles, sharing of houses, sharing of this, sharing of that, simply because the new generation that's coming out of school, they can't afford to just buy the stuff themselves. So I think that's an effect that you will see. Now, in terms of just it blowing up, you know, student loans happens over 20, 25 years in repayment. And even on the federal income general repayment plans, and they have that tax at the end of them that you have to pay, you know, that's not going to be for 20 or 25 years down the road. And it might affect you personally, but to the greater economy, I don't see it having a drastic effect because it's spread out over time instead of just one big boom, everything collapsed like the housing market and the credit market just dries up and gone and private investors are screwed. Well, in this case, it's the the government that owns the paper. The government can just print money. So it's going to be, I think the effect is going to be over the long term. And it's going to be, a, in my opinion, not a good effect, but it's not going to be this drastic, drastic, like you're going to open up the newspaper and the stock market is going to be down 30% in a week. You know, that's just my opinion. I wish I had a crystal ball because then that way I can probably invest and make a lot of money doing different things. But, you know, that's that's my opinion on where it's going. Interesting. Interesting. Joe, what are some of the most important financial investment tips that you're trying to educate the overwhelming majority of people to be doing? 
One, have a simple game plan. You know, that starts off with what percentage of my income should I be saving? You know, and we'd always talk about budgeting and all that stuff, but everything, the, the key to all that stuff is you have to look at everything relative. And that's why I talk about percentages. So I'm going to start a game plan and I'm going to start saving 10% of my income. Now, the next question is, is how do I do that? You know, does your company offer a 401k? You know, did they match? Can you take advantage of that match? So on and so forth. You know, that's the first piece is just understanding how much you should start putting away. Then the second piece is how how do you do it? And the most important piece of that is one, understanding risk and understanding what you're going into and how it might go down, how it might go up. What are you risking and how do you mitigate that risk? What other alternatives are there? The other piece is understanding what you're going into. And I don't mean you, you don't need to you know do something like I did where you're studying finance five hours a day to pass tests. Like, you know, that's not necessary, but just have a simple understanding. So that way, whoever you're talking to, that's going to help you manage your money. You can say, okay, I, I have a broad idea of what he's doing. I understand it. So therefore, if my strategy starts doing this or that, I'm not going to panic. And the example I give all the time is the average investor. So actually, let me back up. Most people will tell you well, the stock market makes, you know, on average six to eight percent a year. Yet the average investor makes about three to four percent. And one of the primary reasons why is what's called behavioral finances and behavioral biases. The market goes down, everybody sells. Okay, market goes up and they buy it at the high, even though everybody knows you're not supposed to do that. And the reason being is they don't understand the investments and they don't understand what's going on with their money. So when it goes down, they panic and they pull it out at the wrong time. If that's going to be you, then why are you investing in the stock market to begin with? If you have no experience in the stock market and you're just trying to figure out how everything's work, tiptoe into it and try to learn something like what's a large cap fund? Okay, what's the risk in that? Okay, well, what if I go into a fixed income fund? What's the difference between that and large? Like just understand some of those high level differences so you don't go in and all of a sudden your money drops and you panic and you sell everything because that's exactly what you don't want to do. So even if you have to keep it simple, do that, understand what you're going into, understand the risks and have a game plan around that. Awesome. That's good advice. So Joe, for our audience or anyone out there who has actually decided on a career that involves taking out a substantial student loan, what should they do before they take out the loan and what should they be doing while they're in school to manage the loan? Before going to school, you got to really game plan around it, especially now because of the level of debt. It's not even necessarily the level of debt. It's just how much does it cost? I mean, you can have cash. I give the example sometimes, you know, if I have $160,000 in cash and I'm thinking about a DPT program and one's going to cost me 80 grand and one's going to cost me 160 grand, you know, financially, even if I have cash, I would really go to the one that's cost me 80 because after I graduate, I still got $80,000 left, right? Like if I go pay 160 grand, great. I got a DPT and my income is probably going to be about the same as if I went to the other school. So the way I think about it is just overall, it doesn't matter if it's cash or debt, just look at it as the overall cost of going. And then when on the debt side, before you go, just ask yourself, is there anything I can do to reduce the amount of debt I take as much as possible? Let that be working the first couple of years of school. So for example, we put out the survey the other day because we get this question all the time. Can I work full-time or part-time first year of school, second year of school, third year of school? Figure out those questions beforehand. Figure out what alternatives there are. Again, I keep going back to PT industry because you know, that's where we're specializing in and try to understand, is there a program out there that instead of three years, I can go for two years and it's remote so I don't have to move and all this type of stuff. And what will that do to my finances when I graduate? Understand the loan options 
before you go. So, okay, this is what's there right now. If I take out this amount of debt, this is the repercussion on my financial outlook. And that's actually one of the tools that we just released for pre-graduate students is based on where the school's at, based on the area of profession you want to go into. If you look at, okay, say here is the amount of debt that I'm going to take out. What's the effect on my Fitbox score? And what does that actually mean to me? Well, it means that I'm going to have to do this with my repayment plan. And then I might have to sacrifice buying a house for five years because I'm just just not going to have the budget to do it. If you're okay with that, great. You know, you can go, but really look at, you know, that debt level and ways to keep it down, have that strategy when you're going into school, do you want to make payments while you're in school? So that way you don't have that debt. You could take advantage of what's called a 120 day refund policy that the federal government offers you. So you can game plan all that stuff beforehand. And then once you're in school, do you start making payments? Like if you're going to pay down your loans after you graduate, yeah, you can start making some payments on it. I brought up that 120 day refund policy with, you know, what that is, is that if you took out like a $5,000 loan from the government and you didn't use it, then you can turn around and give it back to them within 120 days and they don't charge you the origination fees or interest during that time period. So it's a way to save some money that way. So those are all things that that you can do while you're in school. And the flip side of that, if you know, like, for example, you're going to use an income journal repayment plan. We see that people do this all the time. They make $100 payments while they're in school, and then they go on an income journal repayment plan and try to go for loan forgiveness. And it's like, well, why were you making payments in school if you're going to go for loan forgiveness? That doesn't make any sense. So have that game plan beforehand, have that game plan during school. So that way, when you graduate, you're in the best financial situation you can possibly possibly be in. Yeah, Joe, I know Brandon and I both appreciate uh, a lot of the stuff you're talking about because both of us haven't gone through a DPT program. You know, we can relate to a lot of that. I can't really speak for other healthcare providers, but I mean, in our programs, there, there were no real in-depth education about personal finances or loans or investments and stuff going through schools. So, you know, realizing that everybody's got a unique financial situation requiring, you know, a lot of individual examination and advice. How do you think we should bring up the topics of, you know, investing and student debt? And loans in DPT programs? Like, should there be some sort of general class or like key concepts and terms? Or is this something we need to likely even go earlier than grad school? Is it even as young as a high school conversation we need to be having? To answer your last question first, you know, when is the appropriate time? The earlier, the better. I mean, I would go before high school, you know, in a grade school, because in reality that we start our education in grade school, you know, finances is part of that. So, you know, in my opinion, it should start even before high school and have that basic understanding of how money works uh, before you even get out of grade school. In terms of DPT programs themselves, the argument that I hear a lot of times from chairs or deans or whatnot is this is a DPT program. Our, our job is to get these individuals ready to be a, a physical therapist. If they want to be financial experts or just understand finance, go get a degree in finance. Okay, And I hear that quite often. But what's not understood is that student loans is now, they've gotten so big that it is part of the profession now. It is part of the career. So you have to train them and, and, and have an understanding. And so when you're talking about what type of financial products, you can't just say, well, here's a few financial videos to go and watch. You can't say, well, here's a refinance lender that will refinance your loans because that doesn't customize it to the individual. And the person that's looking at that doesn't know anything because they've never had any education before. So you have to have a system. And that's what we created at Fitbooks was to say, look, this is a technology that personalizes this to your situation. And we're going to concentrate this on student loans and the first things you need to do when you graduate. So that way you set yourself on a right financial footing. So all these things like investments and buying a house and everything, you're on that projection to do that. And that's the key 
piece of it. So again, what's the big deal for putting this stuff in the DPT programs? I'll give you perfect examples. Okay. So we have done over 50 student loan presentations and workshops at different DPT programs, different SIGs and throughout the country. Okay. So for example, I'm going to Arizona on Thursday to do a workshop for the Arizona SIG. Going out the next month to go to Western University to do a workshop there. Just went to USC and Azusa Pacific. So we're doing these workshops and it's the feel for what's going on with the student loan that can make or break the industry in my opinion. So I'll give you a perfect example. There was a school that we went to and the chair was basically like, we don't want them to come. The chair is like, we're not paying, yada, yada, yada. And the students were like, we want you to come. So we're set everything up. And I was like, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll fly out. Of, we'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. And we went out there. And before I even started, it was 50 students and they're sitting there you know, mother F in the, the chair, mother F in the APTA, sitting there saying, anybody that ever asked us about PT, we're telling them, don't go into it. And essentially, they blame the school, they blame the APTA, they blame them for putting them in that situation. So on the flip side of that, the schools that have actually invited us to come to talk about this stuff openly, the students have said, look, the school is trying to help us. And the issue is not necessarily with the school, the issue might be with the federal government not having the proper type of checks and balances in place to make sure that these tuition prices don't go through the roof. And they thank the school for trying to help them. They thank the profession for trying to help them. And that's what we see primarily and why I try to tell some of these schools, let us come out to help because you don't want your students graduating being upset and hating the profession and hating the school and hating everything else about it and telling other people don't ever think about going into PT because you're just going to drown in debt and it's not worth it. Okay? That's the not the image that you want. So that's why I think DPT programs should be having it in there because it is a reality for many of the students that they're going to be graduating most with six figures in debt. And you got to have an understanding of how to manage that because if you don't, you're going to start blaming the industry and everything else. And as a program, you should want to avoid that. Right. And students are getting smarter and smarter, younger and younger these days. So it can almost be like a bargaining tool or, or a chip to say, hey, look, we're a PT school that's a step above everyone else because we are including this finance education in our program. Absolutely. I completely agree. And to say, look, we're trying to get out in front of this issue. That's awesome. Like, I would love to see that, not just from, you know, because obviously our company is a finance company, but I've been saying it from day one and I said it today. I think it should be in grade schools. It should be everywhere because it's a reality. And by the time you get to a DPT program, then that financial education now needs to be geared towards PTs. And now they can specialize how, you know, their financial education, like you get your general education in grade school, you get a little bit more advanced in high school, you get some more in undergrad. And then once you go to a major profession, you get exact details of what's going to apply to you and your specific career. And it's like, well, when you look at that scale from grad school or from grade school to grad school, there's nothing. There's nothing on finance. And some high schools are starting to put it in place now. But like when I was growing up through grade school and high school, there was nothing. Yeah, likewise. You know, I joke around, I joke around, right? Like I went to a state school for my undergrad and every elective, I got to take geology and religious studies and comic spirit and expand my horizon. And I'm a finance major. Yet you look at every other major, psychology majors and geology majors and all these engineering majors, none of them have to take a finance course, not one. And it's like, really? Like you just kind of exclude that out of general education. Okay, that makes sense, right? I think the programs need to step up and, and have some of that education. That's, again, my personal opinion. 
Oh, no, I totally agree with you, Joe. Actually, when I think back to kind of even my undergrad, you know, I'm not going to lie. Some of those classes in there, I'm like, you know, why did I need to take that? Like, that really doesn't... <laughs> something like this that is very relevant to every person in this world, pretty much, you know, that just kind of blows my mind. Yep, exactly. And that's why, like, we were talking about what's going to change. And you're starting to see a push in Silicon Valley, especially, is schools that specialize in certain things from a very young age. So, like, out here at 18 years old, you're starting to see a ton of things like code schools, for example. So it's like, look, you don't need to go get your undergrad, just come straight into code school and you're going to graduate and get a job at six figures in Silicon Valley. And so that's what I think is going to be the ultimate change is you're going to start seeing some specialization like that. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. This looks like a good place to take a break from class. Next week, we will return at the same time, same place to hear Joe's insight into the role of being a financial advisor and effective financial teaching strategies. Until then, Have a great week, everyone, and thank you for your class participation.